Mission accomplished. Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the first Thursday of the month, which means it is time for none other than Dr. Jessica Krant. She is a board certified plant-based dermatologist and we are doing our monthly Q&A. I just wanna make sure I'm live because usually I see it and I'm not seeing it right now. So Charles, can you please tell me if I'm live? I am not seeing it yet. So let's see. I guess I am live because people are posting. I'm just not seeing it. Yes? Okay, sorry about that, Dr. Krant. Usually I get a little notification, but you're too important to not be live. So how are you, Dr. Krant? I'm doing great, Chef AJ, and as always, happy to be here with you. Fantastic. All right, goodness. Well, we have so many questions for you, but is there anything you want to talk about? Anything that's come up either in the research or your practice or any beauty products you found? Well, I... You know, I'm also certified in integrative dermatology and I don't, I don't have the information yet, but there've been a lot of amazing recent papers that have almost been published like today that are coming out about more plant-based and natural options for rosacea and different ways to think about sunscreen. So I'm excited to share those with you guys over time. Nice. Well, you know, that that's always, we get that every month we get a question, sunscreen, what kind? Can you still get vitamin D uh, if you use it? And actually Dr. Greger was on my show again last week and he said, absolutely. You still, you still get the vitamin D with the sunscreen, right? Yes, that's right. And uh, you know, sunscreen is not 100% blockage of ultraviolet rays. So it depends. And ultraviolet B rays are the rays that trigger our cells to make vitamin D. So it uh, it depends how much of the UVB rays get through. And even though it might be even SPF 100, that does not actually mean 100% blocking of UVB rays. So the sun, the higher the SPF, the more the UVB is blocked, but it's some of it still gets through. Thank you. What about those clothes that the people wore in the desert when I lived there? Are, do those block all the rays? You know, when you have the full coverage masks and things. You know, the darker the material and the thicker the material, the more it physically does block the sun and also absorb the rays so they don't get through to your skin. If you ever look at your, if you're in the sun and you look under a black t-shirt versus looking under a white t-shirt, you can see that more light gets through the white. And that is real. That's UV rays getting through. Um, so it depends how many layers, how thick and how densely woven the material is. If you would look inside the clothes and it would be dark, that means there is less light getting through. Um, but also UV protective fabrics, you know, if you see commercially made clothing that says UPF 50 or UPF 50 plus, that is the official measurement of sun protection in fabrics. And that means that it's like an SPF, but it means that there's a 50 fold protect, protection factor, meaning you could have 50 times as much time in the sun to get the same sun exposure as without the clothing. So of course, again, light colors do let more ultraviolet rays through and 
it depends how thick the fabric is, but those are protective as well. We, we actually have measurement on the commercially made ones. We don't have any measurement for the layers that people are wearing in the desert if they are not commercially created. That's interesting. When, when did, I mean, what did our ancestors do? There wasn't sunscreen. They didn't even wear clothes. So did they get skin cancer? I don't really know because at you know, some point we weren't really measuring that. And also I think societally, we just thought that people grew things on their skin and, you know, we didn't necessarily know what it was and people would die from things we didn't know what they were dying from. So I don't know if our skin has changed. I don't, I don't think that they um, were recreationally just being very pale or very not sun exposed, you know, any, any skin tone can be not sun exposed and then go lie in the sun, get burned and have an increased risk of developing skin cancer. So if you're in the sun all the time, in some ways, some of your skin cancer risks are actually decreased for certain types of skin cancer because it, you don't have a history of repeated burns and it's the burning that really is damaging the DNA aggressively. I mean, that's really scary to think because when I was younger, everyone, we just slathered ourselves in baby oil. You know, we didn't know in 1960, right. nobody told us. That's right. So, and, you know, it was sort of thought of as a good sign if a kid was out there getting burned because they were getting the right amount of sun. So now we know that those kids from the 60s and 70s that were getting thrown outside and sunburned are now my patients who have a lot of skin cancers. And of course, it does depend on your natural genetics and your skin tone, your eye color, but anybody of any skin tone and skin type, skin color can get skin cancer. So I always like to make sure that people realize um, lighter skin people tend to get different types of skin cancers, but everybody can get all types of skin cancers. So it's valuable to be not get burned, be aware and get your skin checked by your dermatologist. Right. And, you know, I mean, there's some people that are so obsessed with having a tan, they'll go to great lengths and even risk their health, either through sun exposure or tanning salons. Do tanning salons have the same risk? Um, legal tanning salons are supposed to only have tanning beds that have bulbs that do ultraviolet A rays which are used to be thought of as the tanning rays and ultraviolet B used to be thought of as the burning rays. And it was thought that ultraviolet B was really a higher risk for skin cancer and ultraviolet A was a higher risk for skin aging. So you look tan when you're young, but then that tanning gives you the sunspots and the wrinkles. But we really now know that both types of rays do both things. So tanning beds get, you know, make people tan. They actually don't really treat the skin conditions that sometimes people medically go to get treated. They think it's like a phototherapy, like a medical phototherapy, but medical phototherapy beds are UVB. Um, generally, most commonly are UVB and they're called narrow band. UVB. They're very controlled. They're medically timed and they increase a little bit with each treatment um, according to a very safe protocol. So we, we minimize the risk of giving somebody skin cancer while we're trying to treat their medical condition. 
it's not really true that you can get those fully treated at a commercial um, tan tanning place. But those tanning beds are addictive. And I just want to say it's true. It is addictive to, to like to be tan and to even go to the commercial tanning beds and also outside, not only because it feels good on your skin, but because we now know that that UV radiation actually triggers the, some of the receptors in the back of our retinas, in the back of our eyes, and it triggers neurotransmitters of wellness and comfort. So people do actually feel more relaxed when they're in the sun. And people who are used to a lot of sun or going to tanning beds all the time, when it's taken away, they, they actually can get depressed and they may feel low and that is a that is actually real. And it's one of the reasons we also get something called seasonal affective disorder, which is a tendency to be more depressed in the winter when it's dark. And then when the sun comes back out in the spring and it's summer and the days are long, our mood tends to be better. For it's for everybody, that's a normal variation of moods, but for some people it's more extreme and severe. And it's actually a medical condition that needs attention one of the treatments is to get a, a panel of lights that's generally actually a blue, a visible blue wavelength that we we would allow to shine toward our eyes and trigger some of those receptors that give us a sense of being uh, exposed to more sun. And I'll just say one last thing, because I know I've been talking for 10 minutes, but it's one, it, there, it's not an accident that the blue of that treatment is so effective and that our sky is blue. And it's that same blue wavelength of that blue sky that on a sunny day that generally gives people a more sense of well-being. I know that I don't like cloudy days or rainy days. Right. And the other reason for that may be also that there can be some barometric pressure factors involved. So when it's going to be cloudy or rainy, the barometric pressure is lower. And it does cause aches and pains in our bodies and it does lower our mood. And when the barometric pressure of the pressure of the atmosphere is higher, it pushes moisture out. It pushes the clouds away. We have some sunny blue skies and we feel better and it's real. So I it's, know it was never cloudy in the desert or rainy. And here now in Northern California, oh my God, it rains like every day and it's cold and I'm not happy. Yeah. That's what people don't realize about Northern California. It's pretty, it can be pretty foggy and chilly. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There's an old saying the the, uh, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. <laughs> right. And I've experienced that. So I believe it. Nice. Well, we have so many questions that'll be, that were submitted in advance. We'll get to those first. If you want to submit them in advance, we keep them from month to month. Please just go to help at chefaj.com. And then if there's time, of course, we'll get your questions from the chat, wherever you're watching. The first one is from Paul. Can you please talk about little red dots that form on skin as you age? They're the size of a pinhead of a needle, very small, flat, non-raised, non-blanching. Lots of them on arms, some on legs. What are they? What causes them? And can diet help? Paul, these are, I'm, I'll, I'll say, remember to say at the beginning also, I know it's in your notes that I'm not, I'm not anybody's doctor when I'm answering these questions. So this is just general medical education. And I'm not actually diagnosing you, Paul, because I'm not looking at you. So I don't know for sure 
the dots that you are talking about and you should go to your dermatologist to be sure. But there is a type of a bright red, almost magenta, hot pink color dot that can be from almost microscopically tiny to, you know, even as large as a pencil eraser in extreme cases, then the larger they get, the darker purple they get. These, if they're what I'm describing, are called cherry angiomas. Cherry because of the color and also they're like little dot, little round dots. And angioma means angie means blood vessel and oma means benign growth. So a cherry angioma is a benign blood vessel growth that looks like red, like a little, little round cherry. They are harmless. They do increase with age. Um, they do sometimes run in families. So if your older relatives tend to have a lot of them, you may also. And they can even start forming and appearing on the skin in your 30s. It's not, it's not out of the question, 40s, 50s but people do tend to get more over time. I don't know that we exactly know the cause. It's nothing you're doing wrong. It's nothing you're causing. It's mostly genetic and they are harmless. You never have to do anything about them. Sometimes they get a little scratched or caught on clothes and they can be removed if they're sore or bleeding, but you can leave them alone. Removal of them is generally considered cosmetic and it's usually not covered by insurance. And there's no way to really remove them all and stop them from coming. So we tend to, if they bother people, we treat a whole bunch of them at a couple of visits, and then we might wait a few years and do another bunch. It really depends on everybody's comfort level. Some people don't care as long as they're safe and not dangerous, and other people just want to be as spotless as possible. So that's between you and your dermatologist. When you say they can be removed, is that like, you know, that little machine that is in every dermatologist's office that like it, it, it kind of burns, but it's cold. Is that how they do it? So there are a couple of machines that could fit that description. Um, one that is cold spray, but feels like it's burning is liquid nitrogen. That is a, that's like a little spray canister. That's a, that's a cold freezing treatment. Like we would freeze a wart. It literally freezes the skin. It can be used for these. We freeze them, they dry, they get damaged. And then the damaged angiomas may dry out over a few weeks and peel off. We also can use something called hyfrication or electrodesiccation. Those are almost synonyms. And that is actually a little tiny metal tip that has an electrical current that burns them physically zaps them. And that's more of a hot, even though the metal tip is cold. So that's another way. And then finally, we also, well, not finally, but we treat them with lasers with the XLV laser, maybe the V beam laser, these vascular lasers. Finally, some that are larger or for certain appropriate reasons, we may actually numb them and cut them with a blade or with little scissors. So all different techniques. And this, these are also, by the way, the same techniques that might be used for skin tags except the laser, we can freeze them, we can snip them off, we can burn them with the cautery. And it's just a way to remove these benign growths. That's great. I, you know, I used to follow my dermatologist on Instagram when I lived there in the desert and just, I mean, he actually posts videos of some of his procedures and I'm like, oh, 
like you guys have to have really strong uh, stomachs, you know? Well, it's funny because um, in medical school, you know, you find out who's going to go into what or who's interested in what field by what grosses you out the least. So skin stuff never bothered me, but there were some other fields where things were, you know, would really gross me out. Like the one that I knew right away I could not do was uh, pulmonary pulmonologists, the lung doctors, oh. because when somebody's very sick or has certain medical conditions, um, they need help suctioning out. I had to do that as a respiratory therapist. It's no yes. fun. It's no fun for the patient or the person doing it. Yeah. You, you know, so, you know, exactly. You have to suction mucus out of the lungs and I that know. I could not do. Yeah. So that yeah. one bothered me. That's Other people, you know, bowel stuff and bathroom stuff bothers them and they don't want to go into those fields. That didn't really bother me. Skin stuff didn't bother me, but the lung stuff, no way. Interesting. Oh, good to know why you chose your specialty. Also, we'll <laughs> always have patience because after all, everyone has skin. Everyone has skin. And there were so many reasons. Um, I actually chose dermatology late in the process because we didn't really have exposure to it much in medical school. And I was very interested in surgery and especially orthopedics. I almost went into orthopedic surgery. I really love surgery and the mechanics of the body, but I wanted a more office-based, um, more primary care type of relationship with families over time. And I really liked that you could do surgery in the office in dermatology. You didn't have to be beholden to a hospital OR schedule. And I really love dermatology truly because we're really at the forefront of technology of de devices and engineering and lasers and other cool um, energy-based devices des and design. We're also at the forefront of stem cell technology because the skin is a very easy way to get some tissue. And we now know how to reverse engineer cell development so that we can make cells less mature and turn them back into stem cells, which are the root of the root cell that can turn into any other cell. And those are used now for disease treatment and even, you know, spinal cord repair. So skin is a is a source of stem cells. And the other cool thing about dermatology is that the skin is almost the second largest, or maybe arguably, you know, competing with first largest immune system. Um, in our bodies. Our skin controls our reaction to our environment and the immune system in our skin is just very complex and massive. So immunology and all the stuff now these days about our immune system is very dermatology related. So there's so much advanced, extremely advanced science and technology in dermatology, but also I really loved it and still do because it's one of the fields remaining where somebody can sit with a patient, talk to the patient and look, just look at the patient and examine them and potentially figure out not only what is wrong with the skin without doing complex testing, but if you're really good and very experienced and have a lot of knowledge and training, you can often also figure out what's wrong inside just by talking to them and looking at their skin. If you're one of the very, very brilliant dermatologists, which I am not, but I have some colleagues who are just absolute geniuses and really know all of medicine, all of medicine. So when they can look at somebody's skin, hair, nails, 
and talk to them for a while and come up with some amazing diagnoses. And dermatologists are sometimes the doctors who figure out what's wrong with somebody who's very sick. So it's just a cool field. I love it. There's uh, there's quite a few people on Instagram. We're new to streaming on Instagram and it's hard to know their names because it's usually letters. But a lot of people are asking if whole food plant-based eating can help with psoriasis. The answer to that is yes. Anti-inflammatory diet and immune managing diet is very helpful with psoriasis. And the whole food plant-based diet is the most anti-inflammatory diet, especially when it's also low to no oil um, and sugar-free and ideally sodium, you know, very low sodium. So all of that anti-inflammatory effect on the high antioxidants, the high phytonutrients um, and high fiber contribute to reducing um, immune system activation, which reduces that excessive cell creation that's going on with psoriasis. It helps psoriasis. It helps um, hydratinitis, superativa. The whole food plant-based diet has been shown to help acne and rosacea and potentially eczema, depending on the cause of eczema. Diet and eczema is very tricky. Um, for some people, it, it can help. So I say it's never a bad idea to try it. Thank you. Well, here's a question about acne and it's from Anonymous. I am almost 20. I've battled severe acne for, four, for three years. I've grown up vegan, eat very little oil, if any at all, avoid nuts and seeds and eat very little processed food. I believe I'm on a healthy diet. I also drink a lot of green smoothies recommended by Dr. Goldner, who has a regular show the first Monday, third, fourth Monday of the month at 11. I just came off a second round of antibiotics a month ago, which were prescribed for the acne. My skin got better, but after stopping the antibiotics, I have pain under my skin on my face as if the cysts are trapped. I am happy I'm not visibly breaking out, but I'm in pain. I don't know what else to do, and I'm so tired of dealing with this. Stronger acne medicine is not prescribed because I'm not breaking out anymore. Accutane, do you have any suggestions? You know, are you familiar with the Nelson twins who had really horrible acne, and they wrote a book called The Clear Skin Diet? Yes, I am familiar with them um, and their and their book, Yes. I wonder if that would help her because she's young, like they were at the time, you know, that they wrote the book. And, it, you know, she says, I love Dr. Goldner, but she said she's doing her smoothies. And if I remember her smoothies have one half cup of flax seeds in them. So I don't know if that's something that uh, would make her break out. She didn't say whether she was doing the smoothie as prescribed. Cause I know, I know Nina and Randa personally. I mean, I grew up with them in LA. They're wonderful. They've been on the show and they had to stop all overt fats in order for their skin to clear up. And even, I think there were a few other things like gluten and there were a few things they had to take out. Yeah. You know, acne, it, acne is one, is one of the most common skin conditions in the world. I mean, especially in the United States and it's either pretty simple to manage or it can be very complicated to figure out. And, you know, we have to remember that everybody's acne has a component of hormonal activation. For some people, it's a very big component. And for other people, it's a small component. For some people, it's mostly inflammatory, but not as hormonal. 
And diet is very, is potentially helps with inflammation. Um, I would not be able to tell anybody over the internet to stop all fats and oils completely, because I, I think that that needs some management with a plant-based um, dietitian, registered dietitian who, you know, can really manage uh, on a closer basis to make sure everybody's healthy. One thing I can say is um, sometimes people take B12 to support themselves and be safe on a vegan and plant-based diet. But I do know that vitamin B12 actually can promote acne. So that's one thing to look at also to make sure that that dose is as really as low as possible for what we need. And also um, hormonal, I don't want to say imbalances, but hormonal issues in acne can be genetic and might be part of a complex and even difficult to identify condition called polycystic ovarian syndrome. And if you have PCOS, it can be much harder to manage acne just with lifestyle alone. So it might require a little bit more help. It does, it does need to be formally diagnosed. And at once, once that's identified, it might be easier to get a more comprehensive plan if that's what's happening. And it's hard to say um, with, with the twins, what, you know, what their journey would have been like time-wise if they hadn't made all those changes. I know they had such a dramatic improvement, but it's also possible that over a 10 year period, somebody who's really struggling as a teenager may have hormonal shifts that also help the skin at the same time. So it's so complicated. I'm unfortunately can't give one answer. That would be a, the Holy grail because I can understand how frustrating this must be, but I think it's worth continuing to go see board certified dermatologists, ideally um, people open to lifestyle management who, who may know some more about it, or even a primary care doctor who's plant-based and really understands a lot of the interactions can still help with skin too, if a dermatologist isn't around. That's what I think. Well, thank you for that. That's uh, good to know. I hope she gets the help. It must be very difficult for her being so yeah. young. Okay. This is from uh, Susan. Would you recommend microdermabrasion? And maybe you can also just say what that is. Well, dermabrasion is literally uh, sanding the skin. So in the old days, we saw it a lot more. It's like taking a piece of sandpaper or a tool with a rough, rough surface and sanding the skin off till there's bleeding. And then we would have it heal and um, it might help to smooth out scars or things like that. That can cause major, major scarring. So do not do that microdermabrasion was the idea that we could sort of lightly sand off just some of the cells of the stratum corneum, which is, they used to call it the dead layer of skin. It's actually not dead. Um, the cells are just drying out and flattening and it makes that outer layer of skin. When we, when that gets sanded off, buffed off gen gently, it, it opens the skin up a little and it actually creates increased cell turnover because our skin wants to be protected. It has to recreate that layer to protect itself again. It can help to speed up cell turnover, 
clear things out of the skin um, and give a little bit of a glow. It's important to make sure it's done gently with overly aggressive microdermabrasion. The skin can be damaged and permanently scarred. So it's not a, a, a be all end all to every issue. People with inflammatory conditions like rosacea or really inflammatory acne can really get into trouble physically sanding the skin and creating more inflammation, which makes everything worse. So I say microdermabrasion, if gently done, can be fun. It can be like a once in a while um, deeper facial, but I would I would say it just depends on who's doing it and how careful they are. Great. All righty, thank you. Next question from Justine. I have a couple of small, flat, pink spots on my cheek. Is that similar to Paul's red spots, I'm wondering, that two dermatologists think might be actinic keratosis. I've been prescribed fluoracil cream, 5%, once a day at night for three weeks. I'm now on day 10, but have had absolutely no reaction to this cream. Is this unusual? Is it possible that actinic keratinosis was the wrong diagnosis? Uh, it's absolutely possible that it was the wrong diagnosis because it sounds like it was a um, proposed diagnosis. And the gate, they may have given the cream partly to find out whether it, the growth responded and whether that would be a convenient way to treat the lesion. S small, flat, pink spots, there is just no way for me to say what of the dozens of things that might be. So I'm not going to try to diagnose. Um, it's, you know, with certain treatments, like there's a cream called imiquimod that uses our own immune system to create an inflammatory immune reaction to an infection or a precancer like an actinic keratosis. 10% of people don't have the receptors on, on the cells, so they cannot respond to imiquimod. Um, so having no reaction doesn't always mean that the growth is not that thing. In the case of the fluorouracil, the 5-FU, that is chemotherapy medicine, like real chemotherapy that gets put in internally for internal cancers. Chemotherapy works by identifying cells that turn over more rapidly than normal. It goes preferentially to those cells and kills them. So we hope that the bad cells are turning over rapidly, are clearly identifiable. The medicine can go there and kill just the bad cells and then leave the good cells alone. Usually this is pretty reliable, but I would not be able to say that no reaction means there's nothing wrong. So I really think in this case, depending on what the situation looks like, it might need a little biopsy to be sure it's not something dangerous. It may be nothing, but I cannot tell. And possibly after this cream doesn't work, your dermatologist may not be able to tell just by looking either. They tried this, it may not have worked. So a little biopsy might be the next step. Again, Perfect. I'm not your doctor, so <laughs> right. we're, just, we're just here learning. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, Sandra asks, about a year and a half ago, I tripped while walking up an escalator with sandals on. The nail of my big toe split about a third of the way down ooh, from the top. Now, even as my nail grows, it stays split at the third top of my nail. Will it ever heal? 
if the bed of the nail dried out and kind of got a seal over it, that nail plate may not be able to reattach there and, and um, grow all the way to the end like it used to. I'm not aware, honestly, if there are nail experts, surgeons, who would consider trying to remove skin there and trying to see if a nail would reattach as it continues to grow out. I don't know if that's a thing, actually, but that would be the only thing I could think that could re-expose a potential fresh nail bed for a nail to attach to. You might be out of luck. And a lot of people who have nail toenails that they don't like actually use stick-on toenails, fake toenails. So once in a while around there on the beach, um, there is somebody walking around who has a, a fake large toenail covering because they don't want what's underneath. I had no idea there were fake toenails. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's, we can't always get those nails to behave. So especially for events, you know, sometimes people don't want an unattractive nail situation. So that can that's a thing. Wow. Okay. Thank you. Here's a question from Heather. I currently use a Korean sunscreen providing SPF 50 plus and PA plus 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 protection. The sunscreen contains two UV filters, diethylaminohydroxybenzoyl hexylbenzoate and bisethylhexyloxphenol methyl X. Oh my God, this is why I didn't become a doctor, triazine. Both of these UV filters are approved in the EU, but not in the US. Would you consider this chemical sunscreen to be safe and effective? Is the FDA just slow to approve? Boy, this is a multi-layered question. First of all, I am not familiar with those filters, those UV filter chemicals, because I am not um, up to date on every non-US sunscreen filter. I do know that people, including dermatologists, are waiting for the FDA to approve additional UV filters that are approved around in different places around the world. And some of them are supposedly broader spectrum. So they cover more wavelengths of UVA and UVB. And some of them are, you know, maybe longer lasting, things like that. I can't say chemical for chemical, which one is which. Um, it's possible that that's an amazing sunscreen better than what we have here. I don't know. So that's the answer to that. What, what's happening with the FDA is they're really, they are really dragging their feet. Um, you know, we suspect that the the lobbies in the United States of the American companies may be very happy to have the FDA go slowly on approving other filters that come from, from other companies. So it's really hard to say what's happening. What, what's interesting to understand about sunscreen, which is different from the cosmeceutical anti-aging things we use, is that sunscreen chemicals are technically considered a drug. So that does, even though it ends up being an over-the-counter drug, over it's like an over-the-counter medication like aspirin, the FDA does actually have to approve through this drug process, the sunscreen chemicals. So it's not the same process as approving another anti-aging cream or a, you know, um, a green tea antioxidant cream. It's, it's, it's really 
much more rigorous and the FDA has more ability to slow the process down. And that's why this is happening. I don't, I don't really know the politics of exactly why, but that's why sunscreens are different. That's really interesting. Are you able to say a brand that you like and use? Um, no, <laughs> I, I, I like so many. Yeah. I, one day I'll do a, a show where I have equal time for all the brands. I don't like to name one. Okay. Thank you. I'd love to see your beauty products. Dr. Nikki Davis did a show like that and it was really, really well-received. Alexis says, Dr. Krant, I've been diagnosed with several epidural inclusion cysts around my neck, shoulder, and abdomen. The largest is a quarter of an inch long. Should I get it removed? Is there anything I can do to reduce my chances of developing new ones? I've been eating about 90% whole food plant-based since July, 2023. And maybe you can say what an epidural inclusion cyst is. Well, epi I don't know if, if she wrote epidural, which is the spine, but I think there is something called epidural. Oh, sorry, epidermal. I don't, okay. I put my glasses on. You're smart, yeah. So epidermal means like epidermis. Right. At the skin. Uh, and inclusion cyst is, is a term that we don't use as much anymore. We tend to just call them epidermal cysts now. And they used to be called sebaceous cysts. That's also a, another synonym that means exactly the same thing. And the other synonym that we don't really use anymore that means exactly the same thing is epidermoid cyst. So anything that's epi, epidermal, epidermoid, um, or sebaceous cyst, those are all re referring to the same thing. And what that thing is, is an, an, I used to say inside out, but it's not technically inside out. It's like an involuted um, pouch that grows abnormally from a hair follicle and it turns inside out. I guess it is inside out. Um, and what happens is it fills, it's, it's attached to a pore just under the skin. There is a little opening, tiny, tiny, tiny black dot. Um, and otherwise it's, it's skin in there and it's creating these skin cells that would normally exfoliate and go out into the world, but they get trapped inside this little sack. So it grows and grows. And that little ball is the, is the cyst. It's filled with dead skin cells, basically, because they don't dry out because they're in there, they get a little wet. So they're mushy. That's what's happening. When that similar thing happens on the scalp, we can get epidermal cysts on the scalp. But when it comes from the scalp hair follicles, it tends to have a thicker wall and sometimes don't not have a clear attachment to the surface. And that one's a little more of a thick walled little bean called a pilar cyst, because that means from hair. Py pilus is the root for hair. So pilar cyst is a hair cyst on the scalp. Epidermal cysts are mostly on the rest of the body. When people tend to make a lot of them, it's genetic. So if it's cysts that are out along the neck and you know, chest and stomach, things like that, maybe on the arms. It's very genetic. There's not that much you can do to stop it. And you didn't really do anything to cause it. There is another condition where cysts tend to form in the skin folds, under the armpits, under the breast, in the groin area that are inflammatory and painful. And that can be a condition called hydratinitis superativa, hydratinitis 
comes from the fact that those are from sweat glands. And superativa means that they could eventually get some pus in them and be really inflammatory. So different types of cysts, different collections of cysts. Can diet help? It's possible. Um, it's possible that reducing dairy, um, if you're not already dairy-free, may help because dairy does tend to promote increased cell creation and cell turnover and inflammation. So cutting dairy out might reduce the production of those cysts or at least reduce their growth, but I don't know that you know for sure. I think the only thing to do is they can be either drained a little bit one by one that leaves the sac there. So it will refill or be, have them be surgically removed, the sac entirely removed and have stitches put in. If they're not painful, it's unfortunately, you know, often considered a cosmetic procedure because it's really, we're just trying to make them look better and they're not medically dangerous. So you'd have to talk to your dermatologist or maybe your surgeon and see if you guys want to make a plan to do a few at a time or just say, forget it. I don't really care. Thank you. Okay. This is from Anonymous. Ear canal itching. It feels like bugs crawling. I have been seen by ENT and dermatologists was sold, told it was seborrheic dermatitis in ear canal. I do not have a personal history of eczema, though my mom has the same itch and it drives her crazy too. They've prescribed a steroid ointment. Can food help at all? Would a highly anti-inflammatory diet make a difference? I think I might sneeze. So I apologize, everybody. Okay. If I... You're allowed. Oh, it, I think it went away. Okay. So it's very important that I name something that just happened in that question. Um, seborrheic dermatitis is not related to eczema. Eczema and seborrheic dermatitis are two different entities. So to say I've never had eczema, but I've been diagnosed with seborrhea, um, it's unrelated, so it doesn't matter. The seborrheic dermatitis is an inflammatory reaction to the buildup or just a sensitivity to a common skin yeast called pterosporum. That yeast is not involved in eczema. Eczema is just some form on the long, wide spectrum of everything from very dry skin all the way to allergies. Seborrheic dermatitis is an irritant reaction to this yeast. Uh, it's the same condition. It's the synonym for the medical term for what we commonly just call dandruff. So dandruff on the scalp is seborrheic dermatitis. When it gets behind the ears, inside the ears, around the eyebrows, around the nose, um, and in men, uh, mustache area, beard area, those are very common areas. And also um, anybody with chest hair, you know, men or, or um, people with chest hair here, that hair bearing area tends to have a little bit more oil glands just like these and can also get seborrhea in the middle of the chest there. So if you see like a rashy condition in the chest hair area in the middle and there's some rashiness on the face and in the ears, that's all seborrheic dermatitis. And the reason that's good news is that it's totally treatable by, by doing two things. One is by killing the yeast that is overgrowing and get a getting a better 
microbiome balance back to the skin. And there are a few ways to do that. And then the other is by reducing the inflammatory reaction to this yeast. So that's what the steroids do. The steroids, the topical steroids, they only reduce the inflammatory reaction. They're very good for temporarily reducing the inflammation, reducing the itchiness. So you can leave the skin alone so that you'll stop scratching it because the scratching tears up the skin and makes it worse and worse. And then you actually could get a bacterial infection, especially if you're reaching into your ear with sharp things to scratch it. You can give yourself a serious bacterial infection that is dangerous on top of your original seborrhea that you were scratching. So I, I don't mind using steroids for temporary reduction of the inflammation, but I don't like to use them as the only long-term treatment because then the thing, the conditions that were creating the yeast imbalance, I use yeast as sort of a nickname, this pterosporum imbalance never go away. And it just keeps going on and on. The tendency to have seborrhea and dandruff is really a kind of a lifelong and genetic tendency. It's not something that we cure once and it has zero risk of returning. Um, but I do believe, and this is a big one. So I hope everybody who colors their hair, including any, any gender of people coloring hair, listen, uh, and anyone on social media, especially Instagram and TikTok, there's a lot of information being put out about using sulfate-free products and using vegan and very, very, very gentle hair products and not washing your hair too often. And all of these things are supposed to reduce dry scalp and um, make your scalp healthier. But I don't think that's true. And I think it's actually advice that's making everybody get itchier and itchier. And when your scalp gets itchier and itchier, those yeast eventually get into your ears and onto your face and make everything itchy. Reducing the frequency of hair washing does help the hair strands be less dried out. But I think it's poor advice for scalp health because when the scalp oils build up, the yeast which eats the oil grows. And the yeast building up creates inflammation, which increases itchiness, bumpiness, little pimples, and flakiness. People interpret that flakiness as dryness, so then they want to wash even less. But I think that removing that buildup, that the dead skin cells, the oil, and the yeast, and killing the yeast actually puts your scalp in a much healthier balance. That means you don't need to wash as often. But it, that loop goes the other way from what they're recommending on social media. Um, one more thing. It's my own made-up theory that sulfate-free shampoos might be contributing to this because they're so gentle, they don't actually contain a meaningful detergent that can really clean the scalp. So some people have, have really demonized sulfates, but I don't. Um, sodium lauryl sulfate is a very valuable detergent. So sometimes I think it, we do need it once in a while. And it is also my theory that the sulfur molecule in the sodium lauryl sulfate, that is, has a sulfur molecule, is, is acting in there as a medication when it gets loose and breaks off the molecule because sulfur is one of our 100-year-old, 150, 200-year-old 
um, antibiotics. It's a natural element. It is literally sulfur, yellow sulfur from the ground. And it's one of our most reliable medications, especially in dermatology. So I don't like to remove that sulfur from our products and make ourselves less healthy in the process and then not understand what we're doing. Cool. Well, my goodness, thank you. I give I give that speech 10 times a day in my office and everybody comes back to me two months later, so relieved because their scalp finally, after years of being itchy, is finally fine. So I, you know, I feel like there's something going on there. You know, I keep thinking about the toenail question, because when you have a problem on your toenail, do you always see a dermatologist or do you maybe go see a podiatrist sometimes? Toenails could be, could be podiatry or dermatology. Um, and, you know, dermatologists are the only physicians, um, who are either MD or DO that went to medical school, <clears throat> who dermatologists are the only ones that formally specialize and are trained in the health of and the biology and the medicine of skin, hair, and nails. So we cover the skin, hair, and nails on the whole body. Podiatrists treat the feet and they also have surgical training. So they treat things growing on the feet, infections on the feet, and also help with toenail stuff. Sometimes they do a lot more toenail stuff because dermatologists may specialize in sort of other areas and not do a lot of more extensive toenail procedures. So it really depends in your neighborhood who is doing more of that stuff that you could go to. And, you know, podiatrists go to podiatry school, so they didn't go to medical school, but some of them are, are really excellent and everybody has a different amount of training, a different amount of experience and a different philosophy of, you know, how they think about things. So it's always hard to be sure who in your neighborhood would be the best for you in terms of toenails. Now, toenails in dermatology and fingernails do sometimes require a nail specialist, a dermatology person who is a specialist in nails because they're really extra complicated. And a lot of general dermatologists don't have the exact, completely full background and, and time to really figure out nail stuff. Wow, that's incredible, a specialty like that within a specialty. Right, and then, by the way, there are also hair specialists who are dermatologists who specialize in hair loss, hair problems, and hair thinning, because that is another area that really can take quite a long time and extensive testing and conversations and support and you know, really a lot of deep exploration and a lot of regular dermatologists who try to take insurance to take care of people aren't able to spend the time that hair and nails can really take. But how do you find a special specialist like that? Would you have to be referred by your regular dermatologist? You can go, you know, depending on your insurance, you can find somebody online and call the office and check and go there yourself. You know, it's not, it's not like, what are you searching for exactly? Cause I would I say dermatology nail specialist uh, specialist. So if somebody has telogen effluvium, like can the hair specialist help them? Well, I would be careful using just hair specialist because there are a lot of people out there who love hair and are, you know, really interested in it and are hair specialists. They might not be physicians. 
So there's actually a type of a hair specialist called a trichologist, T-R-I-C-H. So like pilo, trico is another root for hair. I think one of them may be Latin and one of them may be Greek, and I'm honestly not sure which one, but trichology is the specialty of hair. Those are people who did not go to medical school, so they're not physicians, but they may know a lot. They may not be able to do all of the testing and diagnose and prescribe like a physician can. But so if you say hair specialist in Google, you might get somebody who's not a physician. So you would say dermatologist, board certified dermatologist, hair specialty, hair specialist, you know, use, just use all the search terms and see what you find. Nice. Thank you. Uh, people in the chat are saying, well, how often should we shampoo to reduce itchiness and what kind of body soaps do you recommend? I think we need to do a, a, a whole episode on products if you can. So the answer to how often it, the hair washing, I literally say to my patients every day, as often as feels best for you, it will depend on your hair length, your hair style, your hair color, how dry your hair is, how long it is. I said that hair length. Um, and which products you like for your, for your scalp. I, you could wash every day. I do not care if they, if you like how it comes out and you don't find yourself damaging your hair by blow drying it every day. And it's too much heat. That is fine with me. If you love how it comes out when you wash it every day, it is not dangerous. Um, some people's hair, especially as we get older, the hair can just be more dry, especially when it, when the hair is really gray underneath that hair is a little drier um, and hormones change. So when our hormones change and our testosterone, everybody's men and women, our testosterone starts to drop, our scalps get less naturally oily and then washing it more often could be, could be a little drying. So it may not need to be washed with shampoo, you know, multiple times a week. So there is no single answer for that. I'm very happy to say, please do what feels best for you. Thank you. I think we have actually only one more pre-submitted question. This is amazing that we got through them. And this is from Jean and she's in her eighties and she wants to know, uh, she's trying to avoid skin breakdown that comes from sitting. Her ideas about the use of waffle cushion, Rojo cushions, other skin ointments, diet. Um, so uh, yep, that's what she wants to know, how to avoid skin breakdown that comes from sitting if, if you're 80 years old. So, you know, just some general knowledge and general ideas. This is this type of skin breakdown is is something to watch out for because it is the first stage of what can happen, you know, when somebody gradually over months and years can develop what we commonly call bed sores. So we're all familiar with that term and that we think of it as people who are bedridden and can't get up, they're very chronically ill or very elderly. Um that's why in hospitals and um, care places, you know, nursing homes and other places, it's very important for the team to help people who can't move themselves to move around and change position. Literally, they will roll people from side to side so they don't create that skin breakdown under the rear end. Um, even if you leave somebody on one side for too long, the skin can break down because it's a loss of circulation right at that spot. And the skin isn't it getting healthy blood flow and nutrients. It will it will get damaged. It will get a little bruised and red, and then start to get dry and peely, and then an ulcer can form. 
So I don't know Jean's condition and her medical situation. And I don't know if Jean's able to stand up by herself. You know, she may yeah, not she, be- she, 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 I mean, it sounds like she does her own. She says, I do all my, my own cooking, cleaning and ADS okay. activity of daily milking. So she's up as often as possible. Okay. Um, but she let, she said the last four years, she's mostly been recliner bind bound due to osteoporotic multiple spinal compression fractures and severe kyphoscoliosis. And she's trying to avoid skin breakdown from sitting. Well, I think Jean probably knows the answer and she's calling, she's writing in for confirmation that it's literally everything possible that you can do that one can do in general to take pressure off that skin. So yeah, waffle cushions, air cushions, donut seat cushions that take pressure off of the middle, the, the, the gluteal area, um, anything that changes the pressure. So like, even if every week you sit on a different cushion, it will change how things are getting a different type of a chair. So you're, you know, sometimes on one side, sometimes in the other sitting more straight up in a, in an upright chair will put more pressure on the back of the thighs rather than this, the end of the spine. There's no shortcut. This, the pressure has to be off that skin um, more, more often if it's, if the skin is starting to get red and break down. Um, your primary care doctor will have some systems available and maybe can refer you to wound a wound care center that can give you some of the cool cushions and specialized things. Um, but your primary care doctor needs to know that this is starting to happen. And it can especially happen if there's more moisture down in that area. Um, sometimes they may not see that area for quite a long time and they won't really know that it's happening. You have to tell them and then they can help you. Perfect. Thank you so much. You got through quite a few questions today. Wonderful. Nice. And we look forward to having you back next month because there's always questions for you, Dr. Krant. Well, thank you, Chef AJ. It's always so much fun. And, you know, I, I'll try to bring something interesting next month too. Sounds good. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific time for Dr. Nikki Davis. She's going to be demonstrating a warm you up soup recipe and also answering all your medical questions. Take care, everyone. And have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.